Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 6, The Island of Ill Fate. I'm Brandon Seal. Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca couldn't tell if it was just a dream, but quote, it seemed as though I was hearing the sound of breakers on the beach, end quote. He awoke to the hard logs pressing against his back, a reminder that he was in fact adrift in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico on a homemade raft. When he opened his eyes, all he could see in that grim pre-dawn hour were the 49 men of his crew piled on top of one another like corpses. Over the previous two months, their sad craft had brought them more than 500 miles through storms, privation, and attacks from hostile natives, only to meet their match with the mighty Mississippi. The current from the great father of waters was so powerful that it scattered the five rafts of the Narvaez expedition all across the featureless Gulf of Mexico. Cabeza de Vaca's raft had managed to rejoin his commanders, that of Panfilo de Narvaez, and pulled within speaking distance of him, only for Narvaez to tell Cabeza de Vaca that it was every man for himself at this point. Cabeza de Vaca ordered his men to put down their oars. Over the next five days, hope disappeared from that fragile raft, and the men's bodies began to shut down one by one. When Cabeza de Vaca had closed his eyes the night before, he didn't expect to ever open them again. So to suddenly hear the sound of waves crashing on a beach seemed almost too good to be true. At first, Cabeza de Vaca refused to let himself believe that he was hearing it. Yet soon, others as well began to point their ears in the same direction, roused from their sleep by the same distant sound. Cabeza de Vaca asked the helmsman if he was hearing what he thought he was hearing. The helmsman replied that whatever it was, he was hearing it too. Those who could picked up their oars and began to row. Someone dropped a sounding line and found bottom. 42 feet, 36 feet, 30, 24, 18, 12, 6 feet. And then just as the first rays of light spilled over the horizon, a wave swelled up beneath the expeditionaries and launched their raft out of the water. Then, as suddenly as they had been lifted, they crashed back down onto Tierra Firma for the first time in a week. The jolt of the craft crashing into the beach brought back to life the rest of the crew, who up until then had lain in the boat, quote, as if dead, end quote. One by one, they rolled out of the raft and into the shallow tide and, quote, crawled on hands and knees, end quote, too weak and too confused to be joyful. And to be fair, there wasn't much on the barren shoreline to give them cause for joy. Just behind the first row of dunes, however, they found fresh water something which not all barrier islands on the Gulf of Mexico offer. And so the expeditionaries drank eagerly from it, and they began to gather firewood to bring back to those of their companions who were too weak to crawl off the beach. Soon they had a few small campfires going, and just the sight of fire cheered up these weary expeditionaries, and the warmth too did wonders for them against the cold November wind. Looking around, Cabeza de Vaca noticed some heavily trampled spots in the beach grass around them. It looked to him like the bedding grounds for cattle, which gave him some hope that they were perhaps, quote, in a land of Christians, end quote. Maybe even they had at last made it to the Rio Panuco, near modern-day Tampico, which had become the expedition's destination once they had given up on trying to found their own settlement on the Rio de las Palmas. Of course, the trampled spots might also be the evidence of some other activity, say foraging for roots, 
but even that was a sign that some help might be nearby. Cabeza de Vaca called out to one of the handful of men from his crew who could stand up at that point. Despite having not eaten a complete meal in weeks, young Lope de Oviedo had been reinvigorated by that morning's excitement, and he just exuded an energy that stood him apart, quote, stronger and tougher than the rest, end quote. Cabeza de Vaca asked him to shimmy up a tree and take a look around to see what clues the land might offer them. Lope de Oviedo obliged, and from up top the tree, he saw land stretching out for only about a mile and a half, followed by more ocean. This meant they were on an island, modern-day Galveston Island, most scholars believe, or perhaps one of the adjacent islands, which are constantly formed and reshaped by gulf currents and hurricanes. Lope de Oviedo also saw some trails. He came down the tree and reported them to Cabeza de Vaca, who asked him to go explore a bit. Oviedo took off down one of these trails and eventually ended up at a small village consisting of just a few primitive Native American huts. They definitely weren't in a land of Christians, so to speak, but even this humble village, Oviedo saw, had some food in it, which was more than any of the expeditionaries had back on the shoreline. And so cautiously, Oviedo entered the native village. Luckily for him, it was empty. And so he quickly scooped up a cooking pot, a few dried fish, and a little dog, and hastily beat a retreat back toward the beach. But not long after he had left the village, he heard voices behind him. He turned and saw three Indians with longbows trailing behind him, calling out to him. They were tall and tattooed, long, lean, and muscular, with piercings through their nipples and lips. In short, to a man like Lope de Oviedo, whose last few encounters with Native Americans had been anything but positive, they were terrifying. They called to him again, signaling for him to stop. It seems they were more curious than aggressive. Oviedo probably looked to them unlike any human being they had ever seen before. Oviedo pretended like he didn't hear them and raced back to his companions. The three Indians stayed on his trail, however, and as they topped the sand dune overlooking the expeditionary's beachhead, they stopped, taking in the utterly unexpected sight of 49 starving castaways lying on their beach. The Indians of the Texas coast had, probably, never encountered a European up to this point, and so harbored none of the animosity that, say, Florida natives had learned toward the men who had already started raiding their shores for slaves a decade before. Mostly, these Texas natives seemed to have been struck by the pitiful state of the men that they saw before them, men who were apparently so completely non-threatening that the three Indians felt comfortable enough to just sit down and watch them. The expeditionaries, in turn, watched the three Indians. Curious, defenseless, indifferent maybe, but each group struggling to know what to make of this moment of first contact between European and native Texas worlds. Cabeza de Vaca tells us that his raft made landfall on Galveston Island on the 6th of November, 1528. This doesn't quite square with the number of days that he's actually detailed in his account up to this point. It should be the 11th or the 18th of November, according to Cabeza de Vaca uber scholars Rolena Adorno and Charles Pouts. Either way, I find the identification of the date of November 6th exactly to be impossibly precise, given that Cabeza de Vaca is writing this 10 years later, and it's been months since he's actually seen an accurate calendar. And so, thinking back to our discussion in episode 2, is Cabeza de Vaca trying to signal something to us here? Is November 6th meant to be taken more symbolically than factually? 
If you recall our discussion from back in episode two, we theorized that Cabeza de Vaca might be using some of his impossibly precise details as signposts to his readers, to mark or emphasize his emotional state at any given moment. Well, I can't help but note that November 6th is the feast day of St. Leonard, the patron saint of prisoners of war. Maybe Cabeza de Vaca is just so steeped in his religious calendar that he can't help but misremember the first day of his captivity in the New World as having occurred on the feast day of the saint responsible for prisoners of war. Or maybe he's actively fudging details to try to make his account more like the lives of the saints' narratives, which were popular in his age. Only in this case, he is the saint in his own account. Does that make him an unreliable narrator? Well, offsetting this is the really striking accuracy of many of the details that Cabeza de Vaca does provide, particularly when it comes to recording anthropological details of the peoples that he stays with. First, I should confess that it's really tempting for me to call the natives of Galveston Island Karankawa Indians, after the name that later Europeans would give to the inhabitants of the Texas coast. Real historians frown on that, however, noting that Native American populations of these regions simply don't demonstrate the same kind of ethnic continuity that our notions of tribes or nation-states assumes. And indeed, the natives that Cabeza de Vaca encounters on Galveston Island don't call themselves Karankawa. They call themselves Caboques. All this being said, later accounts of how Karankawas lived in the 1700s do seem pretty similar to how these Caboques lived in 1528. For example, Cabeza de Vaca notes that these Caboques were, quote, tall and well-formed, end quote, so that, quote, they seemed like giants to us, end quote. Well, later Karankawas were frequently observed to be quite tall and described as muscular and lean, with the bodies of expert swimmers that traveled frequently across the narrow bays of the Texas coast. Similar to later descriptions of Karankawas, the Caboques were master archers, according to Cabeza de Vaca. Quote, they have no other weapons than bows and arrows, with which they are most dexterous, end quote. The natives on this part of the Texas coast, both in the 1500s and the 1700s, were hunter-gatherers, who apparently occupied the barrier islands seasonally between October and February, where they foraged for fish, turtles, some kinds of oysters, and roots. And in fact, it was their digging for roots that had probably made the impressions that Cabeza de Vaca and Lope de Oviedo had interpreted to be cattle bedding areas back on the beach. And all of this, by the way, is well corroborated by the archaeological record, most notably by the work done at the Mitchell Ridge site on Galveston Island. All of this seems to indicate that Cabeza de Vaca is reliable enough, at least in some matters. And even if he is fudging dates a little bit, the more important details, and even his explanations for the significant events in his story, they tend to make sense. And in contrast to the romantic tales of chivalry and conquest that filled Castilian literature at this time, Cabeza de Vaca's story is anything but that. His is a story of naufragios, calamities, the name that he actually gives to the second edition of his narrative when published toward the end of his life. And in those calamities, Cabeza de Vaca shows us in sometimes unflattering ways how he and his men responded in order to stay alive. Case in point, the three Caboque Indians sitting on the beach quickly sent word to the rest of their tribe of the 49 wet, starving men, were they even men? Scattered across their beach like slithering driftwood. Frankly, the three Indians alone probably could have killed all 49 of the castaways, but for some reason they didn't. And neither did the other 100 of their tribesmen when they showed up 
to take in the curious sight. Mike Caro, in his famous book on poker tells, summarizes the playing style of most beginning poker players as, quote, weak means strong and strong means weak, end quote. That is, beginning players play a strong hand like it's weak and a weak hand like it's strong, and they think they're being strategic by doing so. Which in my business experience, by the way, could also be used to describe most inexperienced negotiators. It's the simplest form of bluffing, but it's also usually the most transparent. Incidentally, I can't help but wonder if some of this might explain Narvaez's failures of diplomacy over the previous weeks. Whenever his expedition showed up to a native coastal village, starving and parched, it's not hard to imagine an imperious Narvaez overplaying his hand in each of these situations, and then pissing off the natives who could see with their naked eyes how desperate he really was. Indeed, it may be the best explanation we can come up with for why relations with coastal natives went so poorly for Narvaez, particularly when compared with what happens next. Because when he's confronted with a hundred armed natives there on Galveston Island, Cabeza de Vaca takes a very different approach. It's one that seems obvious in retrospect, but we probably shouldn't underestimate how hardwired the desire is to show strength in moments of weakness, especially when you're an envoy of the most powerful nation in the world. But in this case, quote, we couldn't defend ourselves, so I stepped forward and called out to them, end quote. Cabeza de Vaca saw his situation for what it was. There was no point trying to intimidate the natives, who clearly outnumbered them, or even in trying to organize a defense. Quote, amongst all of us, there was no point in even thinking we could defend ourselves, because we could barely even find six among us who could stand up, end quote. And so instead, Cabeza de Vaca openly and plainly confessed his vulnerability to the Cabocas. Of course, he couldn't speak their language, but somehow he got the meaning across. Maybe he clasped his hands, maybe he kneeled, maybe he cried, we don't really know. But in the end, he somehow managed to invite the Cabocas down into the expeditionary sad camp. Accepting the invitation, of course, required some degree of courage on the part of the natives as well. But the scene before them was interesting enough that they decided to brave it. Once they reached the expeditionaries, Cabeza de Vaca offered the Cabocas gifts, that first universal diplomatic gesture. In this case, nothing more than bells and beads. Then, he tried to explain to the natives who the expeditionaries were, and why they were in the state that they were in. Quote, we tried to reassure them, and ourselves, end quote, Cabeza de Vaca says in a really revealing line. Of course, the expeditionary situation probably required very little explanation. They were clearly from somewhere else, they were starving, and they had no way to move on or frankly even to survive the next few days unless the Cabocas decided to help them. And note the difference it makes just by putting it in those terms. No one likes an invader with a bunch of pretentious titles and proclamations. But who can refuse a man a meal when he tells you that his life is in your hands? In short, Cabeza de Vaca was holding a weak hand, and so he played it as weak. It's the kind of narrative moment that seems immensely credible to me. There's nothing heroic or self-aggrandizing about it. He doesn't present himself slashing his way through the enemy hordes like a modest of Gaul or anything like that. He and his men are in a miserable state. He knew it. The Cabocas knew it. And so he decided to appeal instead to some universal sense of charity, rather than trying to intimidate the natives with the trappings of his supposedly advanced civilization. 
and it seemed to work. The Cavokes received the bells and beads excitedly, considering themselves to have been made, quote, very rich, end quote, by them. As evidence for this, they then gave the expeditionaries arrowheads, items of genuine worth to them, and items that were scarce in this part of the state, which sat a hundred miles or so from any known sources of chert or flint. By means of signs, they told Cabeza de Vaca that they understood the expeditionary situation and that they would return in the morning with food and provisions. At that moment, Cabeza de Vaca had no way of knowing if his strategy had worked, and neither did any of the rest of the men with him. Some were openly skeptical, especially those who had been veterans of the conquest of Mexico. They fully expected the Cavoques to return the next morning and cut their beating hearts out of their chest. And even the more level-headed might have pointed out that the Cavoques on Galveston Island looked quite a lot like the natives who had shot arrows at them in the Florida swamps and the Biloxi beaches and from canoes along the Louisiana coast. Do I really need to go on? Of course, what choice did the expeditionaries really have? And this was Cabeza de Vaca's real insight. Sometimes, the path of least resistance is the right one. Their fate was in God's hands now, or if you prefer, in the hands of the Cavoques. And only morning would tell what the Cavoques had in store for them. On the next Cabeza de Vaca. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode at rivardreport.com, home for nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Also, please go like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. We're telling old stories in new ways here, but a story's power comes from its being shared with others. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache, is composed by Kevin Graham and available on Soundstrike. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, to Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout this season. And for more information about the sources we've used in this series, as well as about us generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.